0: This is David Wilcox, and you're listening to episode three of Better Late Than Never. So last time I was reading War as a Racket by Smedley Butler, and I'm going to continue with that reading and commenting on it. And this is chapter three: Who Pays the Bills? Who provides the profits? These nice little profits of twenty. 100, 300, 1,500, and 1,800 percent. We all pay them in taxation. We paid the bankers their profits when we bought Liberty bonds at $100 and sold them back at $84 or $86 to the bankers. These bankers collected $100 plus. It was a simple manipulation. The bankers controlled the security markets. It was easy for them to depress the price of these bonds. Then all of us, the people, got frightened, and sold the bonds at $84 or $86. The bankers bought them. Then these same bankers stimulated a boom, and government bonds went to par and above. The bankers collected their profits. But the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. And I'm going to add to this. So for me myself, I was was deployed to Iraq twice for a 14-month deployment, and then the next one was a year-long deployment. And I was there for when there was no need for me to be there. I was there based on I was there based on lies. Okay, so back to the book. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad, or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. On a tour of the country in the midst of which I am at the time of this writing, I have visited eighteen government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. The very able chief surgeon at the government hospital at Milwaukee, where there are 3,800 of the living dead, told me that the mortality among veterans is three times as great as among those who stayed at home. And Well, there's no surprise there. <laughs> Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. There they were remolded, they were made over, they were made to about face to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder and through mass psychology they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or being killed. Then suddenly we discharged them and told them to make another about face. This time they had to do their own readjustment. Sans mass psychology, sans officer's aid and advice, and sans nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them anymore. So we scattered them about without any three-minute or liberty loan speeches or parades. Many, too many of these fine young boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about face alone. And I think in... The um, show notes of the first episode I recorded for this podcast was the, it was one of the two, I think it was the second of the two Mark Passio presentations that I put the link to that he had talked about the the techniques of cults and um, that's what's used in basic training. Okay, back to, back. let me get back to where I was. In the government hospital in Marion, Indiana, 1,800 of these boys are in pens. 500 of them in a barracks with steel bars and wires all around outside the buildings and on the porches. These already have been mentally destroyed. These boys don't even look like human beings. Oh, the looks on their faces! Physically, they are in good shape. Mentally, they are gone. There are thousands and thousands of these cases and more and more, more and more are coming in all the time the tremendous excitement of the war the sudden cutting off of that excitement the young boys couldn't stand it that's a part of the bill so much for the dead they have paid their part of the war profits so much for the mentally and physically wounded they are paying now their share of the on the next page of the they're now paying their share of the war profits but the others paid too they paid with heartbreaks when they tore themselves away from their firesides and their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam, on which a profit had been made. They paid another part in the training camps where they were regimented and drilled while others, while others took their jobs and their places in the lives of their communities. They paid for it in the trenches where they shot and were shot, where they were hungry for days at a time, where they slept in the mud and the cold and in the rain. With the moans and shrieks of the dying for a horrible lullaby, and let me jump back in here so for with my two deployments to Iraq, I didn't experience anything like what he's talking about with these veterans here with who were World War one veterans. I wasn't in any massive firefights or anything like that it was mostly for me it was mostly a lot of riding around in trucks or pulling guard in places but uh i was i guess i was just lucky i guess i was lucky because i was never i knew people that were hit by ieds but i don't didn't know anyone personally who had died so and, and i was lucky because i was never around or in one of the convoys when it was hit so like i said mostly i was doing a lot of riding around or pulling guard in a guard tower or guard position I didn't get in anything like you saw on the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan not even close but I can only speak for myself I know there were others who went there who were in firefights yeah let me get back to where I was but don't forget the soldier paid part of the dollars and cents bill too up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system, and soldiers and sailors fought for money. During the Civil War, they were paid bonuses, in many instances, before they went into service. The government, or states, paid as high as $1,200 for an enlistment. In the Spanish-American War, they gave prize money. When we captured any vessels, the soldiers all got their share, at least. They were supposed to. Then it was found that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping it, but conscripting but conscripting drafting the soldier anyway. then soldiers couldn't bargain for their labor, everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, "All men are enamoured of decorations; they positively hunger for them, so by developing the Napoleonic system, the metal business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honor was handed out. It made enlistments easier. After the Civil War, no new medals were issued until the Spanish-American War. And if you look at old, the old, I think it's called daguerreotypes, but the old old black and white photos from the Civil War, and if you look at um, paintings from that era, you won't see any medals on their uniforms. in the world war we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription they were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army so vicious was this world so vicious was this war propaganda that even god was brought into it with a few exceptions our clergymen joined the, in the clamor to kill 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 to kill the germans god is on our side it is his will that the germans be killed and let me comment on what he said about the medals like the boys like to be the boys liked to be decorated in um the occult mockery of police and military personnel presentation uh, mark passio has pointed out that the people in charge the powers that shouldn't be think of the military and the police as their dogs so in this case i kind of think it with like with these medals they're throwing their dogs some treats or a bone and there are other, and there's another researcher out there named Michael Tassarion, and in some of his work, he's commented on how, um, that the occult designs of the medals, like the Medal of Honor and others, that they, that it's like, the way they think of it is you, they have to mark, they have to mark, um, they have to mark uh, military people for sacrifice, or mark them for destruction and that's part of what the what medals and other things that go on uniforms are made for according to his work. <clears throat> okay, so here's where I was. And in Germany the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the Allies, to please the same God. That was a part of the general propaganda built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was, quote, the war to end all wars, unquote. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. No one told them that the ships on which they were going to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. <clears throat> they were just told it was going to be a glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war, too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this, magnific- for this munificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, eat canned willy when they could get it, and kill and kill and kill and be killed. But wait, half of that wage, just a little more than a riveter in a shipyard or a laborer in a musician's factory safe at home made in a day, was promptly taken from him to support his dependents, so that they would not become a charge upon his community. Then we made him pay what amounted to accident insurance, something the employer pays for in an enlightened state, and that cost him $6 a month. He had less than $9 a month left. Then the most crowning insolence of all, he was virtually blackjacked into paying for his own ammunition, clothing, and food by being made to buy Liberty Bonds. Most soldiers got no money at all on paydays. We made them buy Liberty bonds at $100, and then we bought them back when they came back from the war and couldn't find work at $84 and $86. And the soldiers bought about $2 billion worth of these bonds. Yes, the soldier pays the greatest part of the bill. His family pays too. They pay it in the same heartbreak that he does. As he suffers, they suffer at night's. As he lay in the trenches and watched shrapnel burst about him, they lay home in their beds and tossed sleeplessly, his father, his mother, his wife, his sisters, his brothers, his sons, and his daughters. When he returned home minus an eye, or minus a leg with his mind broken, they suffered too, as much as and even sometimes more than he. Yes, and they too contributed their dollars to the profits of the munitions makers and bankers and shipbuilders and the manufacturers and the speculators made. They too bought Liberty bonds and contributed to the profit of the bankers after the armistice in the hocus po- in the hocus-pocus of manipulated liberty bond prices. And even now, the families of the wounded men and of the mentally broken and those who never were able to readjust themselves are still suffering and still pain. Chapter 4: How to smash this racket. Well, it's a racket all right. A few profit, and the many pay, but there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parleys at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry labor and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers make and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the other things that, profit, that provide profit in wartime, as well as the bankers and the speculators, be conscripted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the lad, As the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in these plants get the same wages, all the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes and all generals and all admirals and all officers and all politicians and all government officeholders, everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of businesses and all those workers in industry and all our senators and governors and majors pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or of having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you will find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket, that and nothing else. Maybe I am a little too optimistic. Capital still has some say, so capital won't permit the taking of the profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds that those they elect to office shall do their bidding, and not that of the profiteers another step necessary in this fight to smash the war racket is the limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared a plebiscite not of all the voters but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and dying there wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76 year old president of a munitions factory or the flat-footed head of an international baking banking firm or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of war, voting on whether the nation should go to war or not. They never would be called upon to shoulder arms, to sleep in a trench, and to be shot. Only those who would be called upon to risk their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether the nation should go to war. There is ample precedent for restricting the voting to those affected, Many of our states have restricted restrictions on those permitted to vote. In most, it is necessary to be able to read and write before you may vote. In some, you must own property. It would be a simpler matter each year for the men coming of military age to register in their communities as they did in the draft during the World War and be examined physically. Those who could pass and who would therefore be called upon to bear arms in the event of war would be eligible to vote in a limited flight site. They should be the ones to have the power to decide, and not a Congress. Few of fewest members are within the age limit, and fewer still of whom are in physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. A third step in this business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defense only. At each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, and there are always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are smart. They don't shout that we need a lot of battleships to war on this nation or that nation. Oh no, first of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you that the great fleet of this supposed enemy will strike suddenly and annihilate 125 million people, just like that. Then they begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy? Oh my, no. No, for defense purposes only. And um, what he had said a little bit, um, a couple paragraphs back, it was interesting, but I don't necessarily agree with it because part of that he's saying that the government should do something and the government should not exist, period. Then... Right back to it. Then, incidentally, they announce maneuvers in the Pacific for defense. Uh-huh. The Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the maneuvers be off the coast two or three hundred miles? Oh no, the maneuvers will be two thousand. Yes, perhaps even thirty, even thirty-five hundred miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course, will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores. Even as pleased as would be the residents of California, where they, they, to dimly discern through the morning mist, the Japanese fleet playing at war games off Los Angeles. The ships of our Navy, it can be seen, should be specifically limited by law to within 200 miles of our coastline. Had that been the law in 1898, the the Maine would never have gone to Havana Harbor. She never would have been blown up. There would have been no war with Spain with its attendant loss of life. 200 miles is ample in the opinion of experts for defense purposes. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coastline. Planes must be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast for for purposes of reconnaissance. And the army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. So basically, what uh, Smithley Buller is saying here is um, to a- to avoid um, meddling in other areas and other places where we shouldn't, and focus on focus more on defense and defending the home turf. To summarize, three steps must be taken to smash the war racket. We must taste we must take the profit out of war. Two, 1 we must take the profit out of war. 2 we must permit the youth of the land who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be war. We must limit our military forces to home defense purposes. All right, and this is the last chapter. Chapter 5: To Hell with War. I am not a fool as to believe that war is a thing of the past. I know that people do not want war, but there is no use in saying we cannot be pushed into another war. Looking back, Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916 on a platform that he had kept us out of war and on the implied promise that he would keep us out of war. Yet, five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. And that's every president that... Every, every president of my lifetime has run on one thing and had some lame excuse for doing another thing and or doing the opposite of what he ran on. In that five-month interval, the people had not been asked whether they had changed their minds. The four million young men who put on uniforms and marched or sailed away were not asked whether they wanted to go forth to suffer and die. Then what caused our government to change its minds so suddenly? Money, an Allied commission, it may be recalled, came over shortly before the war declaration and called on the president. The president summoned a group of advisors. The head of the commission spoke. Stripped of its diplomatic language, this is what he told the president and his group. There is no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the Allies is lost. We now owe you American bankers, American American munitions factory. though he has this in parentheses, He's quoting them, and then there is no use in kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the Allies is lost. We now owe you, and here in parentheses he has, American bankers, American munitions makers, American manufacturers, American speculators, American exporters, end of parentheses, five or six billion dollars. If we lose, and in parentheses he's got, and without the help of the United States, we must lose, We, England, France, and Italy, cannot pay back this money, and Germany won't. So, had secrecy been outlawed as far as war negotiations were concerned, and had the press been invited to to be present at that conference, or had radio been available to broadcast the proceedings, America would never have entered the World War. But this conference, like all war discussions, was shrouded in utmost secrecy, when our boys were sent off to war, they were told it was a war to make the world safe for democracy, the Barnum statement, and a war to end all wars. Yeah, it's another Barnum statement. Well, eighteen years after, the war has less of democracy than it had then. Besides, what business is it of ours whether Russia or Germany or England or France or Italy or Austria live under democracies or monarchies? Whether they are fascists or communists, our problem is to preserve our own democracy. And very little, if anything, has been accomplished to assure us that the world war was really the war to end all wars. Yes, we have had disarmament conferences and limitations of arms conferences. They don't mean a thing. One has just failed. The results of another have been nullified. We send our professional soldiers and our sailors and our politicians and our diplomats to these conferences And what happens? The professional soldiers and sailors don't want to disarm. No admiral wants to be without a ship. No general wants to be without a command. And those two sentences he just put are absolutely true. And part of it, I think, is these guys that are generals and admirals, it's it's not that they... It's not the money that they don't want to be without a command. They don't want to be without a command because... Their ego is attached to that. Both mean men without jobs. They are not for disarmament. They cannot be for limitations of arms. And at all these conferences, lurking in the background, but all powerful, just the same, are the sinister agents of those who profit by war. They see to it that these conferences do not disarm or seriously limit armaments. The chief aim of any power at any of these conferences has not been to achieve disarmament to prevent war, but rather to get more armament for itself and less for any potential foe. There is only one way to disarm with any semblance of practicability. That is for all nations to get together and scrap every ship, every gun, every rifle, every tank, every warplane. Even this, if it were possible, would not be enough the next war according to experts will be fought not with battleships not by artillery not with rifles and machine not with machine guns it will be fought with deadly, deadly chemicals and gases and that that's what was being talked about at the, to, the time between the two world wars because there there was a lot of poison gas used in world war 1 Secretly, each nation is studying and perfecting newer and ghastlier means of annihilating its foes wholesale. Yes, ships will continue to be built, for the shipbuilders must make their profits. And guns still will be manufactured, and powder and rifles will be made, for the munitions makers must make their huge profits. And the soldiers, of course, must wear uniforms, for the manufacturer must make their war profits too. So I say... To hell with war, and that's the end of the end of the book. And the end music kicked in kind of before I was ready, but I think I can fix that after this. But anyway, what he was talking about was um he was talking about the military-industrial complex decades before Eisenhower talked about it in his farewell address. And after he after he used the term military-industrial complex, it Kind of became a household term or something that everyone's most people have heard at least once so if anyone wants I have this as an ebook and it's not a very big file it's not a very long book it's more like a more of a pamphlet than a book but if anyone wants uh, wants this copy of it, just send me an email at Better better late than never one five four seven at gmail.com and I'd be glad to email it to you. And I'm not sure when I'm gonna do my next episode because uh, I'm gonna to have to do I have the I have the material, but I'm gonna to have to spend some time doing more research for it and decide breakdown like how I'm gonna present it. But um, that's that's all I have and I will uh, post this up on Twitter and also on the on the uh, Captivate platform.